Well, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. We'll be looking at Acts chapter 17 this morning, and you can find it on page 926 of your pew Bible. Hear now the reading of God's holy, inerrant, inspired, and therefore authoritative Word. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king Jesus and the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall stand forever and ever. Let's pray together. We thank you, O Lord, for this truth. And therefore, we pray as the people of God, speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. And we ask it in and through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Luke tells us that Paul and Silas, they've left Philippi, it's where they were in Acts chapter 16, and they've passed through these two cities, Amphipolis and Apollonia, and then they came to Thessalonica, and if you were trying to consider why are they passing through, why didn't they stop, where are these two cities, what do we make of it, you know, it's church history, if it is correct, what most would suggest is that Paul and Silas, they they traveled on a Roman roadway called the Via Ignatia. It's It's about 10 to 20 feet wide. It was a very safe passage. It was quite the interstate, if you wanted to call it as such. It was running through modern day Albania and Greece and Turkey. And so if you're trying to figure out why would Paul and Silas, why would they not stop at these two places along the way? Why would they leave and go to Thessalonica? The short answer is, we don't know. 
Is it perhaps the argument that was presented in Acts chapter 16 in verse 6? The, the Holy Spirit forbids them to stop there. We don't know. Uh, perhaps does Paul have a plan, a, a strategic plan for why he wants to go through and go to somewhere else? We don't know. What we do recognize is that there are some major cities along this roadway, cities that you are quite familiar with. One would be Ephesus. Rome would be on there. Corinth would be on there. And so is Thessalonica. And so why does Paul and Silas go there? Of course, we do not know. And yet we trust in the work and will of God because they arrive in Thessalonica, and whether or not it's actually true, there is some old literature that would call Thessalonica the metropolis of Macedonia. And so it was a big city. It had a lot of uh, hustle and bustle, you might say, going on. Perhaps it was an Atlanta kind of city. And so they find themselves there to minister the word of God. It's a significant city. It's in the Roman Empire, And something unique about what Luke is telling you is this is a city in the Roman Empire, but it has to have some form of a substantial Jewish community. How do you know that? Because what does Luke say in the very beginning? And Paul went in, that is the synagogue that he referenced in verse 1. He goes to a synagogue. You don't just have a synagogue if you don't have what you might call a critical mass of Jewish people. And so Paul, as his pattern or as his custom, is he goes into the synagogue where there is people prepared to hear the word of God preached to them. Now, it might sound interesting that Paul, going to this Roman city, goes to the synagogue. If you were to have uh, rewound a little bit, what has been Paul's experience When he goes into the synagogue or when he is engaging Jewish people, how does ministry go? Well, not well. He goes in preaching Christ and typically he is violently persecuted by them. And yet, coming into this city, perhaps there's a fresh start he has. Where does he begin? He goes to the church. He goes to the synagogue of where the Jews are even though they have demonstrated quite the extreme forms of unbelief. And he preaches again the gospel. And it's not a one-stop shop. He doesn't just come in, drop the word, and leave. He's there for almost a month. It says three Sabbath days. He has been there for three to four weeks preaching the gospel. You might call that a a short-term mission trip. And isn't it interesting what Paul does on his short-term mission trips? He's preaching the word of God. He cares about the truth and he brings it to them. Now, as we enter into Acts chapter 17, Luke seems to be doing a shift here, doesn't he? If you remember where we've been in Acts chapter 16, Luke has been telling you about some of the great uh, work of God in the lives of people. We learned about Lydia. We learned about a slave girl. We learned about a Philippian jailer and how the word of God has entered into their life and radically changed them, brought them from death to life. But here Luke seems to be doing something different. He's no longer giving a great emphasis or focus on individuals. He's giving a focus on the message, on the content. What is it that Paul is preaching 
And what you'll see is in two points, or better stated, in two places, you're going to see the same preaching and yet different responses. The people of God hear the same word of truth, or these people, I should say, hear the same word and yet respond differently. And so we'll first look at Thessalonica, what happens in Thessalonica, and then we'll turn our attention to Berea. Now, if you're looking at Acts 17, 1 through 9, that is where Paul is in Thessalonica, and you and I have heard Paul preach already. You can find it in Acts 13, and you can find it in Acts 14, but what Luke does here is he gives you a a very clear pattern. This is what Paul preaches about. This is what he wants people to understand, and how do we need to make those observations? Well, there's one very significant one. What characterizes Paul's preaching. He preaches the word. And let's not make light of that. Paul is preaching the word. That is, he is preaching the scriptures. And why might he do that? Yes, you will hear from Paul later when he tells Timothy, why do we preach the word? Because it makes us wise unto salvation. There's something about the word of God that it provides clarification to what it means to be saved. And every bit of it is profitable, he's going to tell Timothy. And so Paul is preaching the Bible. Now, I want you to slow down for a moment and consider what that means. Paul preaches the Bible, not your Bible. Paul preaches the 39 books of the Old Testament. That is the scriptures in Paul's day. And he is preaching from the Old Testament. It's a demonstration It shows forth to us a practice that says what? We need to be a church that preaches the Old Testament. Please don't be that kind of a person or a Christian that says, I'm a New Testament Christian. And what you mean by that is simply, we don't talk about the Old Testament. We just look in the New Testament. The Old Testament doesn't seem to have relevance. Friends, you can't understand your New Testament if you don't understand your Old. Because you don't know what Paul is talking about unless you have a framework for which he is talking. And he's preaching the Old Testament. From the Old Testament, he wants you to know who is Jesus. And we want to be the same kind of church. Now, how does Paul preach? When he's preaching from the word, Luke gives us some descriptors, some adjectives that define his sermon. He says that he's preaching and he reasons with them that he is demonstrating the the logic, the rationale of the scripture's arguments. Now, some have tried to suggest when Luke says that he reasons with them, that it's, it's it's more of a dialogue, that Paul's gonna throw out an observation or a question and say, tell me what you think. And upon what you think, then he's gonna respond. You know how foolish of an interpretation that is. That is not at all what Paul is doing. What is Paul doing? He knows the worldviews of his day. He understands the fallenness and the darkness of the world, and he's making observations about the world, and he's putting it in a a logical and a rational explanation as to what does the word of God actually say. He's not asking them for their opinions so that he can counteract. He's diving into their heart and into their mind saying, I know that this is how you think, I know this is what you desire. I do too. And yet here's what the scriptures say. He's bringing out the observation of the word rather than asking them to give their own interpretation of it. And so he reasons with them. 
is what Luke says. He doesn't just reason, though, does he? It says he explains them. That word explain, it's the, it's the same word if you remember Luke's gospel. Luke's going to use that same exact word to describe Jesus when he is teaching on the road to Emmaus. These two people mourning the death of Christ while Christ is in their very presence. And what does Luke say? Jesus opens or explains to them the scripture. He's bringing light. He's bringing understanding to this text. And then Luke says he doesn't just reason. He doesn't just explain and open it up. He proves. He proves something. And what is it that he's proving? That the Christ must suffer and die and rise from the dead. I'm sure Paul was probably using such passages that you're familiar with. Passages like Isaiah 53, outlining the suffering servant. Perhaps some of the Messianic Psalms, that is Psalm 2, Psalm 16, Psalm 110, perhaps even Psalm 22. But Paul is using the word of God and he's proving this is what the word actually says about who Christ is. And Luke finishes by saying he reasons, he explains, he proves, and he proclaims. He brings forth the announcement that this is the Christ. This is truth. And his name is Jesus. Jesus had to suffer and die and rise from the dead. Don't you appreciate what Paul is doing here? I can't definitively say this, but I don't think it's Easter morning when Paul is preaching this sermon. And yet he puts a priority on the life, death, and resurrection of Christ anytime he preaches. And if you're considering Luke's description here and you're saying, I, I hear you, that sounds a little intense. It sounds a little aggressive. And the answer is yes, and intentionally so. Because what Paul is preaching about, you might say, is a life-death sermon every time. Anytime Paul is opening his mouth to talk about the word of God, it's a matter of life and death. And I want you to imagine that for a moment because perhaps there's an implication in this text that you and I need to consider. How do you consider a church? How do you choose a church? Or better yet, how do you call a pastor? Now, you're not asking those questions right now. I just want you to think for the future. But do you hear what he's saying? I had a friend a few months back ask me uh, my opinion on some things, and that was, hey, I'm looking for a pastoral job, and I'm looking in these areas. Do, do you know of any positions? Do, do you know of anything open? And my first thought was, no, no, I don't, but I can do what everyone else does. I can, I can look. I can figure it out. It is quite shocking to see what we want to call pastoral roles. One such church was looking for a pastor, and you think I'm kidding. Their title for the pastor was, he's the pastor of celebration. What a mockery. You know, I initially laughed at it, and I thought, that, that can't be real. It's real. When you think about pastors, what does our world look like? What do they look for? They want an energetic pastor. They want some charismatic, dynamic speaker. 
They want to know how many degrees do you have? What kind of a leader are you? What's your vision? Can you develop? Can you grow the church? How do you want to see these plans implemented? Do you know what the problem is if that's you when you're considering a pastor? You would not call the Apostle Paul. If that's your understanding of what it, preaching in a pastor is meant to look like, Paul is not on your list. Paul's resume doesn't look like that. Paul's resume is quite simple. I love Jesus. I'm going to defend the truth at all costs. I will go anywhere. I'll do anything. I'll even be homeless if I can tell you about Christ. When you think about a church, you think about pastors, you think about preaching, what is it that you're looking for? Paul's going to tell the church at Corinth, what's his role? Maybe it's a theme for pastors and preaching. We proclaim not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. And for ourselves, your servants, for your sake. What's the point? It's quite simple. You want people to defend truth at all costs. You will never in your life need less of truth. You always need truth. And so it makes me wonder, what would it have been like to be Silas? What, it, what would it have been like to be around Paul when he's on these missionary excursions, these journeys I think a summary you could say is spending time with Paul is, it's like spending time with Jesus. Because there's no way you would have spent any amount of time with Paul and not heard about the birth of Jesus. There's no way you would have been around Paul and he wouldn't have explained the life and the, the work and the death and the resurrection of Christ. If you would have been around Paul, you would have heard Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. What would spending time with Paul be like? It would be like spending time with Jesus. And what a powerful, powerful picture. And so what happens? Paul preaches Jesus. And Luke tells you, when you preach truth and you preach the gospel, what's the result? What happens well, it divides your hearers. It divides the people. When you proclaim Jesus Christ is Lord, it doesn't bring unity. It brings division. Look at what he says in verses, uh, you can see some of it in verse four and five. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. What happens when Paul preached Christ? Conversion. Some people heard the word of God and it entered into their life and it changed them from the inside out. It brought people from death to life. It, it brought about a new community. It would have brought about a, a new worship. They would have had a more central focus on Christ in their community and in their worship. It would have been an enrichment for them. And yet that's not all of what happened because Luke continues and he says, but the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob 
Not all people heard that Jesus Christ is Lord and said amen. Some were jealous and mad. They were angry about it. They're jealous of the ministry of the gospel as it's taking root and it's, it's working in the lives of people. They don't like it. They don't want to see it happen. And you've heard about that. It's not new. It happened in Acts chapter 13 when Paul was preaching Jesus to the Gentiles. What happened? Jews got very, very angry, very jealous. Why? Perhaps because, as the old stereotype would be, they don't like Gentiles. Maybe it's we're jealous of the success of these preachers, or maybe it's God's grace should not be extended to them. I don't like them. They're not like us. They're not children of Abraham, biologically speaking, if that's the way that they want to understand it. They're not like us. We don't want God to extend salvation and grace to them. You know, that affects us too, doesn't it? Sometimes we begin to misunderstand what the term grace is. Some of us want to demand grace, which is not grace, by the way. But sometimes we want to govern it and say, who should get it and who shouldn't? Who should hear the gospel and who should not? And these people were mad. And so what happens? Well, they stood up and they disagreed with Paul and they said, Paul, we need to correct you. You said these things. Let me show you actually what the Old Testament says. Is that what they did? Not at all. They provided no rational argument, no corrective criticism to his preaching. What did they do? They hired the rent-a-mob. They went into town. They found the people who were creating trouble, and they brought them together, and they wanted to attack Paul and Silas. You recognize what's taking place here is instead of trying to bring about unity, they create division. They instigate violence when they didn't get their way, when they don't like what they see. The decision that was made was not something that they agreed with. They instigated violence and division. They create disorder and distraction. And they go to Jason's house and see what he says. What does Luke tell you? They went to Jason's house. Who were they looking for? Paul and Silas. But they couldn't find Paul and Silas. And it didn't stop them anyways. They took Jason and brothers out, dragged them out into the city. These men who have come here also have turned the world upside down. They're talking about the kind of troublemakers they are. They're the intense troublemakers. They create societal unrest. They're not fitting in the status quo. They're changing things. They're troublemakers. They're enemies of the state. They're going against Caesar. They're saying that Caesar's not the king, that there's another king, and his name is Jesus. Now, in fact, if that's really what they thought, if that's really what they thought the argument was, then, then there's truth in that. Caesar isn't the ultimate king. Jesus is the ultimate king. But what, what do they want they want their name to be great. Yes, Caesars were very insecure people because they had all kinds of coups. People were always trying to kill them and take them out. And so you could imagine the kind of societal uproar that is taking place. Or perhaps maybe it has nothing to do with Caesar being king. Maybe it's they just flat out want to reject the teaching that Jesus is Lord. 
We're not quite certain exactly what their motivation is, but we see it and how they respond. They want to heap violence on people. Believers need to learn. Christians, we need to learn what it means to be faithful even in times of distraction, even in times of challenge. And so what happens? They, they're coming to get Paul and Silas, and in the middle of the night, they move them from the city. They get them out. They have left Thessalonica. They travel some 55 miles or so to Berea. And what happens in Berea? Wouldn't you suspect that, Paul, you've learned something here. Don't go to the synagogue. But what does Paul do? The method doesn't change. He goes right back to the synagogue. And he preaches again the word of God. I don't think Luke is trying to outline in Berea the sermon. I think Luke is trying to outline how do you hear the sermon. If this is what it means to preach, and he gives you an outline in Thessalonica, Berea, he's telling you this is what it means to listen to preaching. This is your role as a member of the church, as a Christian. If you want to understand Christ, you need to follow along. And what are the words that he uses? The Bereans, they receive it. They examine it and they respond to it. What does it mean? Luke tells you, these Jews were more noble. That just means they were fair-minded. They received the word with all eagerness. They wanted it. There was something that they were anticipating when they came to hear from Paul. When Paul was preaching the word, they were sitting with excitement. I want to hear what you have to say. It's not so much I'm here out of duty. It's a delight. Help me understand truth. I want truth. It's not a new idea. The word eagerness is not so much unique to the Bible. There are many things in our life that we're eager about. Many of things that you're willing to tell other people about. Saw this movie. Did you see the game last night? You see this joke, this video? We're an eager people. We love to receive things with eagerness. Is that true on the Lord's Day? When you come in here, is that the posture by which you're coming in? I want to receive with eagerness. Or is it easier to sit in here relatively quiet, think about lunch plans, weekly plans, or some other agenda? Now, I'm not saying that to condemn anyone. I want you to understand what I think Luke is suggesting. I think he's suggesting our natural disposition is not one of paying attention. We are an easily distracted people. We would far rather be distracted by something else than be distracted by someone else, namely Christ, that we might come in here and want to hear Jesus. And so can I ask you that question? What did you expect when you came in here this morning? What were you hoping or eager to hear? You know, our, our goal as a church we want to preach expositionally. That means we take a book of the Bible and we go verse by verse. Now, to help you understand what we mean when we say we preach expositionally verse by verse, it doesn't mean we're going to milk every single verse for all of its worth. None of you would appreciate the length of that sermon. 
But what we are trying to tell you is when we come in here, we want to provide the central theme of the passage. What is God trying to say in this particular passage? What's taking place? Because what we hope as pastors and as elders is that you would come in with the mindset of we believe in transformational worship. That's what Paul's gonna tell the church at Rome. You need to have your mind transformed. It needs to be renewed. You need to be thinking about the word of God, letting it dwell within your thoughts and that it would transform you. Do you come in here like that? Believing that this is an hour of transformation, not personal transformation, so I'm a better person, but a worship, transformational worship. We need both of us to believe that. You need to believe that. I need to preach that. You need to believe what takes place is it can transform and change your entire life. And I need to believe the same thing. It's quite common if you were in our offices right before we come up, we pretty much pray for two things every week. Same two categories. God, would you be merciful and save those who hear Those of you in here who don't know Christ, we're praying for you every week that the word would penetrate your life and change you from the inside out, that you would leave a very different person. We're praying for you every week that God would save you. And then others, we're praying for your sanctification, that you would come in and you would leave looking more like Jesus. That's our prayer every week. Is it yours? Is that how you come in here? Believing that the word of God preached to you can change you from the inside out. You see, if we have a lazy view of preaching, our worship will be lazy as well because we don't believe in what we're doing. It's just a box that we can check off and say that we've done it. What's your view? Are you receiving the word of God with eagerness? They receive it and then they examine it. Don't you appreciate that Luke tells you that as a part of what they do is they examine the word of God. You know what these people did not have? Exactly what you have. They didn't have a Bible in their home. They certainly didn't have it in their pocket. How would they have had to examine the word of God? They would have had to hear a sermon. They would have had to go home and think about it. And they would have had to come back to the temple and use the public scroll. They would have had to use everyone's copy, the one or two copies that they have. How do we understand this word? They're doing it as a community. How do we know that it's true? What does this word say? They're examining the scriptures. It's why we want to encourage you, bring your Bibles to church. Bring them, highlight them, write in them, mark them up. As some have called it, the holy sound, hearing the pages of scripture turn during a sermon. Use every bit of your Bible because they're examining it. And what Luke is saying to you is one of the truths that came out of the Reformation, that is the priesthood of all believers. Now, what does that mean? It means that we all have a responsibility to examine the word of God. That every one of you can read this word and understand it. 
Sure, it doesn't mean that you are all trained to some of the greater degrees, but the, but the basic message of Scripture, that God is holy and that you and I have fallen short of the glory of God, we're sinners, and that God sent his Son, Jesus, that if you would believe in him, you would be saved and have everlasting life. It's a grace alone, a faith alone, Christ alone. Everybody can understand that just by reading your Bible. We need to examine it. That's not our culture. We don't live in a world anymore that examines the Scriptures. We don't live in a world that knows the Bible. In fact, I want to show you how much we have digressed as a culture. In 2006, this was a study done on some of the basic elements of the Bible. In 2006, 63%, not just of the world, but of the church, 63% could not name the four Gospels. 58% couldn't name half the Ten Commandments. And 58% weren't even sure if Jesus was the one who preached the Sermon on the Mount. And then in 2020, Ligonier Ministries actually does a state of theology. Do you want to understand what happens? If that's the culture we live in in 2006, how have we, what, where have we progressed? What do those statistics lead to? This is some of them. 54% think religious belief is a matter of personal opinion, not objective truth. 48% think the Bible contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but it's not literally true. 46% think everyone sins, but most are naturally good people. And 42% thinks God accepts all worship from any religion. We have lost the ability to examine truth and the word of God. We don't examine for what it is. These saints were examining it, not focusing on who said it, but what was said. It wasn't so much, well, here's Paul. He's the greatest. Let's listen to him. No, they wanted to know what he said, not so much who said it. Because Paul's going to actually address people at Corinth. When you want a celebrity pastor, if that's what you're looking for, you've totally missed it. You're looking for Jesus, not some celebrity. We don't want a fan club. They're examining the scriptures. And then they respond. Didn't you appreciate Luke tells you in both cities what it looks like when they respond? They learn, they believe, and they worship. And it's beautiful because what are the effects of the preached word of God? It touches men and women. Don't overlook that. Luke is telling you the word of God touches men and women. Men, you need to examine the scriptures. Ladies, you need to examine the scriptures. All of us need to be those who examine the truth. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, young or old, male or female. You are responsible to hear and examine the word of God. And I want you to hear me say it over and over. Examine the word of God. Stop looking for those Bible studies that look pretty on the outside. Who cares about the color of the cover? It's the content that you need. I looked up this weekend and it made me sick. Did you know that you, there are 1,084 different study Bibles that you can buy? A men's study Bible, a women's study Bible, a soldier's study Bible, a black one, a blue one, a brown one, and everything else in between. 
You don't need more Bibles. You need the same Bible. You need the content. Don't tell me you're a red letter Bible. That doesn't even make sense. When we say the red letters are Jesus' words, the whole Bible is in red. Jesus is the Word. You need the Word of God. And if you were here with us Thursday night, I want to bring to light what was said. It was so helpful. How do you open your Bible? He was quoting someone, and I can't remember who he quoted. It's a taking off the sandals moment. When you open the Scriptures, you're entering into holy ground. It doesn't matter what the cover looks like. It matters what's inside. Read and study the word of God. The word divides its hearers. Expressions of faith show themselves by how we receive it, how we examine it, and how we respond to it. I put that question before you this morning. How are you going to respond to the word of God. In a previous church of mine, they often cited this prayer by Thomas Cranmer. Blessed Lord, which has caused all Holy Scripture to be written for our learning, grant us that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. We want to be a church who regularly prays and practices the preached word. We don't want to be a hearing church only. We want to be hearers and doers. And by the Lord's mercy, he'll continue to do what he's promised. It will not return void. As it goes out, it will not return void. How will you respond to truth this morning? Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you that we, in fact, have truth. Not a truth, the truth. We have your truth. We have the living truth, the truth that divides, it's living and active, it's sharper than any double-edged sword, that it enters into us and it, it stabs us, it heals us, it convicts us, it changes us. That's why Jesus says, sanctify them by your truth, your word is truth. And so I pray, please, O oh God, for those who might hear Save those who have not put their hope in Christ Jesus and yet sanctify those who have. Might they begin to look more like you because they apply the word of God to their life with the dependence that, Holy Spirit, you are on the move and you're working. So build your church, O Lord, by the preaching of your word. We ask in and through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.